Hey, you're listening to a premium preview episode of the Flux Pod. This is a little bit of an episode that's going out for the Patreon subscribers. The full episode uh, is about an hour long. This is, you know, a little little chunk of it, a little uh, little morsel to interest you, perhaps. Uh, $5 a month uh, will get you four to five extra episodes of this show. Uh, Patreon.com slash Fluxblog. Uh, this episode features the writer Ronin Gaboni, and uh, he has a new book out called Not For You, Pearl Jam in the Present Tense, and uh, this the conversation we have kind of goes all over the place. Uh, it starts off talking a lot about Ronin's regular job, where he is a curator of the Wordless Music series, so uh, he's heavily involved in classical and you know avant-garde music, but... Uh, the book is about Pearl Jam and uh, kind of the cultural context of Pearl Jam uh, and from a lot of different angles. It's a very interesting book. And so uh, a little bit of our conversation. Uh, and I hope you uh, are interested enough to check out the rest. Thank you. A thing I appreciate about this book is that it comes from kind of, um, well, it's definitely coming from a fan angle, but from uh, definitely a critical angle on them, but it's also trying to put them in a lot of context. Like a a, a good portion of the book is like aggregating other uh, sources, whether it's uh, other books or various articles or just things. There's just at one point, I remember there's like, there's tons of YouTube comments about Dave Abrazies, you know, it's it's kind of a very holistic view of the band. Yeah, I mean, thank you. I you know, it's I mean, in a sense, you know, it's it's as much about Pearl Jam's sort of impact in the culture and um, you know, and, and the way that I think people who kind of grew up in that window, you know, like whether they're music people or not, like Pearl Jam just kind of seems to have stamped themselves on, on that moment. I you know, I, I a lot of, you know, especially those earlier chapters that uh, you read, you know, I, I made a point to kind of check in with friends of mine growing up, people who, you know, maybe their last record <laughs> bought was not, you know, for many years, but I said, you know, do you remember Pearl Jam on uh, the, you know, the MTV Video Music Awards in 1993? Do you remember like Eddie Vedder writing pro-choice on his arm? And, you know, across the board, people were like, you know, absolutely. That was just a TV moment that if you were, you know, under 21 years old in the year, you know, 1992, you saw that and you probably saw it repeatedly. And uh, yeah, I I think like the fact that they were, they were such a TV band in this way that like, they were so good at making these very exciting cinematic moments that were not like, like big theatrical things, but just like, just, just watching someone be interesting, watching someone move around, watching someone like jump from a great height. And I, I you know, I think that the video for Even Flow, I don't think anyone's ever made a more effective uh, video in terms of getting people to want to buy a ticket to see your band live. No, definitely. And, and you know, one of the least, I think, surprising uh, facts about Eddie Vedder's life, you know, is that he was a child actor growing up. You know, there's, there's kind of a, there's like a there's like a promo shot of him, you know. I think at maybe six, seven, eight years old, you know. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I think that 
you know, that's part of what people found so compelling about him is that he was so, you know, hyper aware of just every eye in the room, every, you know, every camera being on him and yet kind of expressing, you know, a bit of ambivalence about, um, you know, not kind of succumbing or, or at least like not appearing to, um, to the sort of temptation of it. Right. I, and then I think, you know, at least for the, through the mid nineties, like the, they're sort of dramatizing that conflict. Like that becomes the conflict that is being put on stage, but obviously they really back away from all of this by, I guess, 1995, uh, pretty thoroughly. Um, and in a way that I think, uh, I think it cements the long-term fandom of Pearl Jam. It cements like them being able to be this ongoing thing on their own terms. But it also, I think, changes. It limits the way people understand them now because they, it's like they just disappeared and stopped. You know, they, they go from being like the biggest band in the world, like or at least one of the three or four biggest bands in the world, to just kind of being this weird ghost that's around. Yeah. No. They. I mean, they, like as you say, they went. You know, and, you know, I think it's important to remember on the other end of things, you know, they went from being, you know, more or less a totally new unknown band to being on the cover of, you know, Time Magazine three years later. And then three years after that, you know, people are wondering, you know, are they washed up? And, and, and you know, Pearl Jam always said that they wanted, um, you know, to be normal size. Well, you know, now is their chance. Like, I, you know, I think it's also you know, one of the things I think is really interesting about that period is just how much, um, you know, the, the greater musical ecosystem was evolving as well. I mean, it's debatable. I think if, you know, if history had been different and, and Nirvana had, had, had ended differently, you know, would, would rock music have kind of, uh, you know, just exhausted itself as, as thoroughly as it did around, you know, 1996, 1997. And, and, you know, it kind of becomes a different thing at that point, I think between Britpop and, and Radiohead and, 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 you know, Chemical Brothers and all that, but. Um, and also kind of the rising tide of like emo bands and pop punk. And yes. I'm not sure if this is the case for you, but like, obviously it was this big rising tide that became more and more and more important but somehow it was sort of invisible if you were kind of connected to these other things. Like you were aware of Green Day, you probably were aware of Blink-182, but that this whole other culture was happening parallel to all that. Um, and, and now in many ways feels like it's more important culturally, like in the history of it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, that that whole, you know, kind of second half of the 90s, um, you know, in a sense, uh you know, I think you could argue that it hasn't really even been written about yet. You know, that, that whole moment from like, you know, Vitology through like, you know, Lauren Hill, it, it, you know, I mean, this was something that I learned, I think in writing it was, you know, I just, I, I tried to go out there and see like, what are other examples of people who have written about this era? You know, what is, what are kind of like, you know, the critical benchmarks. And I don't know if it's a function of like, that being when, you know, the internet sort of fell into mass use. It's, it's sort of when, you know, a lot of archival stuff sort of falls within the cracks during the mid nineties. But yeah, I think that, um, you know, a lot of, at least what I had in the book was my, my personal sense about like American rock music relative to the rest, but it's, um, you know, there's a lot that uh, I definitely left out. 
Right. Well, I guess another thing that we're kind of leaving out of that narrative is like what happens when like all of these very idealistic uh, Gen X bands, you know, also including R.E.M., also including, you know, even things like BC Boys, uh, they're all, they all kind of peter out around 97, 98. Mm-hmm. By that time, uh, the Pumpkins as well, Soundgarden's broke up around 97 uh and then that's kind of when all the new metal kind of clicks in and that's when all like the kind of post grunge stuff kind of kicks in and i think there's kind of a uh it really pushes a lot of people away from rock music so you either connected with that music or and, and that's kind of what became the sound of rock radio or you just kind of went the opposite way and you kind of ran towards indie and all the indie right. stuff. And then also kind of like the Radiohead kind of things were to started moving in, I think, I think in retrospect, clearly in direct opposition to all of that, whether it's Radiohead becoming more electronic or, you know, bands like uh, Bell and Sebastian and, uh, you know, a lot of th- uh, neutral milk hotel, like all these things yeah. that started becoming a little bit more twee, a little bit more uh, into this kind of like uh, low key uh, orchestral stuff, right. bright eyes. Right. I think that part of that, what you really see is this class division where mm-hmm. like the, the rock radio music, the mainstream rock music becomes very, very working class. And the indie and arty stuff really just is like that is college people music. And, mm-hmm. you know, they would call that some college music in like the 80s and 90s. But I think that's where it really becomes like a collegiate mentality. Yeah, I think that's up right on the money. I mean, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, two things. I mean, one, a lot of those bands you mentioned, you know, Mutual Milk Hotel, Bell and Sebastian, Radiohead, you know, like it's, it's a different thing, but, but, you know, that mode of like, you know, Matador records or merge, you know, like I think it was very much a reaction to like, okay, you know, we're not going to do the, uh, you know, MTV route. We're not going to do the, um, uh, I don't know, even like the, the sort of, uh, you know, Fugazi, uh, Mike Watt, Mike Watt thing. It's like, um, yeah, I, 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 I mean, again, like for a lot of people, you know, I think like if you say to them, like what were, you know, what was the early nineties about like in music, that's fairly, um, unambiguous, you know, like that's a fairly obvious answer. If you say to people like, what was the second half of it about, you know, some people would say like, well, you know, Tupac and Biggie, and some people would say the Backstreet Boys and, and Breaking Spears, like, and, and um, yeah, it, it, you know, like, it's interesting in that, like, a couple of years later, you know, there are, again, a handful of bands that, you know, I think people coalesce around, whether it's the Strokes or the Killers or whatever, like, but, um, you know, what I try to come back to a lot is, like, I don't think that the Seattle bands like self-consciously set out to create a movement, Um, you know, but inevitably like after 1995, it was all post Seattle, like whether it was, and I, and, you know, I don't think like Jeff Mangum in any sense would consider himself like a post Seattle artist, but I think that like after like the ubiquity of both MTV and radio um, you know, it was just like, it was going to be a couple of years where if you were going to play rock music, like that mode of just kind of being on stage, like it, you know, it, it was the beginning of the, of the end of it just seeming like truly exhausted. Mm-hmm. 
and also as we kind of lay out like you know the 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 big bullet points of how history played out with rock music you know you really see like uh, oh yeah there is a point where it's very clear pearl jam does not have a, a role to play in any of these digressions mm. uh they but they do a thing that i think uh has become instructive for a lot of different acts since and you know i think they were kind of I'm not sure if they were directly inspired by the Grateful Dead, but they basically became like a Grateful Dead kind of thing where it's about this fan community and they are extremely generous with their fans. They, they have been from the start, but they really made that connection to that audience and this uh, audience that is just very, very devoted to them, wants to hear like every show they play, you know? And I think that, more and more artists have kind of taken that where, you know, you, you remain a popular act, but you're also a cult act. Mm. A, a lot, I think a lot of the nineties acts have kind of moved in that direction uh, in one way, shape or form. Well, yeah, I, I think the grateful dead comparison is right on the money. You know, they like, you know, in the book I had a chapter where, uh, you know, in, 1995 in, in Chicago, they played Soldier Field. And, you know, as it happened, it was, I want to say like three or four days after, you know, the Grateful Dead's last show with Jerry Garcia, they literally borrowed their stage and, you know, at a certain point said like, we need to thank them for this. You know, there, there were still, you know, joints on the stage from last night. And so it was, you know, this, this kind of, this passing of the, of the torch, you know, as it were, and like, and, and it's, you know, if you think about it, there's, you know, musically, there's not a lot of obvious overlap between the two. I mean, Pearl Jam people are quite obsessive in their collecting of bootlegs and alternate versions. But if you actually look at, like, what is an alternate version of, you know, their songs that really change a lot versus, you know, Dark Star from one night to another, the, the dead are, you know, like a truly improvisational band. There, there, you know, there really are, you know, night to night that the songs are, you know, almost un, uh, uh, you know, unrecognizable from from one night to the next. Pearl Jam, I don't think you can say that, but um, yeah, they just sort of jam out on some songs, basically, <laughs> like porch and even flow, things like that. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of extension, uh, <laughs> but, but you know, in the sense of like. Um, you know, there being a community of people who have met each other and who, you know, have met husbands and wives and, and, you know, there's, there's like fundraisers and benefits and, you know, it's, and the culture and, and the fan um, sort of service aspect of it, you know, down to like the percentage of tickets that go to, you know, the fan club, that's, you know, that's absolutely out of the Grateful Dead playbook. And, you know, and you could say that like when, when someone like Ed Sheeran, you know, uh, self-consciously keeps ticket prices down low. You know, that's the same tradition, I think, that he's, uh, you know, working with. 